Hello, Chris. Hello, Daniel. It's a pleasure to have you in here today. It's a pleasure to be here. I've been looking forward to doing this podcast for a long time. I've been dreading it. <laughs> <laughs> um, we got a lot of stuff to cover today. Um, I've been through, I've had Ben in here, Ben Kirkwick uh, from Uncharted X many times, a couple times now. Good and uh, he's talked a lot about some of the stuff that you've been working on for the past few decades um he and i are both huge fans of your work he obviously you know cites all of your work when he does his stuff and when he goes to the pyramids and reports some of the stuff and in his videos on uncharted x and uh that's how i actually first discovered you was from when ben came on here about a year ago after he came in i read your book the giza power plant um twice just finished reading your new book, The Tesla Connection, which was mind-bending to say the least. Maybe you could give us sort of a, a brief background on your history and um, how you got interested in the pyramids of ancient Egypt. I was raised uh, in work, a working-class family in Manchester, uh, England. And uh, my father was a butcher and my mother was a housewife. And I have uh, four siblings, a brother and three sisters. Um, so it was a very loving household. And uh, and I ultimately decided at uh, the age 15 that I was done with school. And I, uh, I pled out to take an apprenticeship and was hired by a company called Mather & Platts. Um, they were an engineering company in Manchester. And so at the age of 15, I entered their apprenticeship program and worked there as an apprentice for six years. Um, I started out, uh, when, as I recall, my, my paycheck was like uh, $7 a week for 40 hours. Oh, wow. Right. So <laughs> apprentices were not paid much back then i mean if you go back to you know the 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 really old days like victorian times apprentices um, parents fathers would take their sons to apprentice with a a tradesman a craftsman mm -hmm. and uh, they would pay them to take them and, and and teach them a trade or they would work for nothing but they would kind of uh stay with the tradesman a craftsman uh, and serve their apprenticeship mm. away from home. Right. Um, so anyway, <clears throat> this was kind of like an indentured uh, apprentice. I, I do, actually, I have my documents, uh, indentures that, uh, that I was given when I, when I uh, completed my, my apprenticeship. And then I left the company as a journeyman um, uh, specializing in lathes. So, in lathes, lathes. What is a lathe? Lathe turning. What is that? It's a uh, a machine tool that um, is used for machining parts, round parts, particularly uh, okay. very precise uh, round parts. There's all kinds of lathes. There are uh, vertical lathes, horizontal lathes, um, and, and they've developed over the years. The capstan lathes, mm -hmm. uh, turret lathes. 
Okay. Uh, tool room lathes, you know, a- every one of them has different features. Mm-hmm. So the uh, so that was my specialty at the time. <clears throat> and I took that with me and went to work elsewhere when I was 22. Um, worked at a forge for a bit. And, uh, and then I went to work at a company called Hunter Muskrat. And they made uh, <clears throat> paper... Uh, milling machinery, textile milling machinery, Uh, really, really long uh, shafts and rollers and stuff like that for industry. Um, While I was there, I I saw an ad in the Manchester Evening News, and it was an aerospace company in in, uh, the States that were recruiting machinists to work in the aerospace industry. Okay. Right. So, <clears throat> what year was this? Uh, that would have been around 1968. Okay. So, 1968, I I, I applied for the position, and um, I got a telegram saying that I was I'd been selected, and and they uh, I had to get you know a, a visa to come to come to the states and and start working. Oh, so wow. I finally finally uh, left the shores of my home country in 1969 landed mm-hmm. in uh, in New York on May the 9th 1969 okay so you came to the US in about around 68 to work for the aerospace company yeah and well what what exactly were you doing for those guys when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Well, um, they hired me uh, <clears throat> to run a vertical lathe called, uh, they call them bullets. Bullard. Bullard. B-U-L-L-A-R-D. Okay. I mean, you got millions of machinists around around the states who will recognize that that word okay what does a bullet look like Uh, it's a vertical lathe it's like they've got a round chuck and then you've got uh, the typical axes that move a turret so that you can cut inside and outside diameters oh this this, is this a bullard okay that's an intense looking machine wow yeah before uh, when I was in England I I ran a, a Webster and Bennett. So in England, they call them uh, boring borers, vertical borers. Okay. And uh, what in the states they call the vertical lathe. So what sort of? So can you explain to me what this thing is doing here? Well, right now it's just sitting there. There's no part. But if you see that, there's a chuck there. Yeah. 
Okay, so you uh, you mount a a part to be machined on the chuck, and the that hexagon kind of thing that has uh, that's not a hexagon, is it? But it's uh, it has a tool post, and you mount tools in the tool post, and uh, and cut the the parts on the outside and inside different shapes. Different what kind of materials? Uh, well, in aerospace, you're you're talking about exotic alloys like Enconal, okay. Hastaloyx. Okay. Yeah. Okay. High re- heat resistant, corrosion resistant alloys. When I first came to the states, I was in. Uh, I worked for a place in Martinsville, Indiana, called uh, Twig Industries. And Twig Industries, uh, they were a subcontractor for some of the major EOMs like General Electric, Allison Engine, which is now Rolls-Royce in Indianapolis, Mm. Pratt & Whitney and other aerospace companies. Um, So they did a lot of aerospace stuff, including including stuff for the, uh, the, uh, the moon landing. So, oh really? Yeah. Yeah. What kind of stuff did you guys engineer for the moon landing? Well, they uh, they were a manufacturer. They didn't necessarily design it or oh, engineer it. They okay. engineered the processes. Okay. Uh, it was a framework for the survival pack for the astronauts when they went on the land, landed on the moon mm-hmm. and did their moonwalk. Mm-hmm. That box of air that they had on their back, right? That box on their back. You guys made that. The framework for it, yeah. And so what, it was a welding. What is that box on the back? Like, what does it do? It's their uh, survival. Uh, I guess it provides, uh, you know, heat and cooling to oh. their, their suits, keeps the temperature okay. uh, regulated, and mm. uh, monitors their, you know, their physical functions and and uh, that stuff. Okay. Uh, wow, that's fascinating. I actually, I they had oh, obviously they had made that before I got there. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, because the moon landing was in June, right? The month after I I arrived. Oh wow! Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was re- good timing. It, <laughs> it was interesting, you know. There's there's a thing about manufacturers and and you know the inside jokes and the, the way people talk about uh, the company and stuff like that, right? So it's like um, there was a you know a, one one old. One old bag said something. He said, "Well, we know, we know that the astronauts are going to come come back. You know, they'll make it back because everything Twig makes always comes back eventually." <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, in God. other words, it's kind of like anything. Everything they make has got flaws, so it's going to come back. Oh <laughs> God! Well, at least you got a sense of humor. <laughs> well, I, you got to have a sense of humor, right? Of course, right. yeah valuable yeah. um so how long did you work for this company um and, and i worked there for about a year just under a year oh okay uh, in martinsville yeah okay and what did you do after that then i uh i went briefly to texas um and then i worked at a, a very small shop in indianapolis i came back to indiana and worked in a very small shop um they made Drapery, machinery, and wheel balancing equipment. Uh, wheel balancing equipment. Yeah. So it was. Yeah, it was. It was a uh, 1970. So we were kind of heading into a recession at that time, uh, and so it was very hard, very difficult to find work. So I yeah. just 
just uh, got the best yard bang that I could get at the time. And then after that, I went to a place called Beulah, uh, which was known as Indiana Gear Company. They made gears for uh, helicopters and other uh, aerospace kind of products. So, Okay. So what is the process when you're working for these companies that are making these gears or any of these aerospace um pieces or parts like what what is the process to actually creating them like you're operating this big machinery so do you, does people send you plans or like schematics for how this needs to be done and what what materials they need to be done with and then you guys sort of figure out how the cuts are going to be made and and all that how does that process work yeah gen- <clears throat> generally the uh, the manufacturing process uh, that i have experienced and you know every company is, is different of course but uh, what, what I've experienced is that the company will receive an order from a customer uh, that will include drawings and specifications. Some of the specifications are on the drawing, others are in a separate sheet, but they will control the, uh, the, the, the process. So the engineers will then take those drawings and design a process and create their own drawings, breaking out um, all the various elements of the of the drawing. So, if the drawing has multiple parts, uh, assemblies, subassemblies associated mm-hmm. with, it, like like a jet engine, <clears throat> let's scroll through here and put up. So, essentially, you've got uh, <clears throat> various parts to a jet engine and. Uh, and they're, they're comprised of individual single parts. Those single parts could be made of sheet metal. Mm-hmm. They could be forgings, castings, uh, and uh, and they are basically uh, cut, welded, machined, uh, formed uh, in all different kinds of configurations and then put together. They may be brazed, welded together which would include maybe spot welding or, you know, TIG welding. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then <clears throat> those sub-assemblies are then uh, shipped to the customer and the customer installs them in their engine. Um, interesting, while, while we're on this drawing, we'll, we'll talk about some of the elements. One of the, <laughs> the principal elements are the, the shapes that you find in a jet engine is a uh, a truncated cone. Right. Right. Okay. So the truncated cone is uh will appear in just about every section of the engine from the the front end to the aft end. Um but anyway, g- getting back to that process, the the manufacturing engineers uh will submit a plan uh to the production, then production will review the plan. Uh, the engineer will have tools, uh, dies, fixtures, gauges ordered from suppliers or for, uh, to be made internally. Mm-hmm. And then everything will come together with the, that particular part that is designed to <clears throat> produce and, and inspect. Okay. So accuracy, uh, uh, the complexity of of these parts is very, very. It's, it's they are unique. 
because you have the application of geometries such as a airfoil shape or something like that. This mm-hmm. kind of it's applied to a truncated cone or other other parts, and then they're supposed to and they're supposed to fit with precision. Mm-hmm. There, the you you cannot allow for any variation from of accuracy. No variation whatsoever. Right. You, you have certain tolerances that you work within. Right. Maybe one, two thousands. Sometimes maybe twenty thousands. But you have to stay within those tolerances. Otherwise, the part is no good. Wow. It could be either scrapped or um, you'll, they'll. You may have to rework it, which just adds cost and reduces uh, reduces your profits, right? Wow. The point is, is that when it comes to public safety, you know, you, there is you have to follow due diligence, right? And that is with that is with the uh, the people you hire, uh, from engineers down to. Uh, tool makers to machinists to production employees all of them are are obligated to adhere to very tight uh, standards mm. this is an example of probably something that requires the utmost precision than probably anything on earth because you're building engines that are on planes that are carrying hundreds of people mm. right so I, I like I, I'm I assume like even building skyscrapers, you don't have to be as precise as you have to be when creating something like this, which contains, I'm sure, millions of very tiny parts and different types of materials that fit together that um, yeah, that create say, the entire thing. They say when they ship a, a jet engine, say like a, you know, a large Trent engine, Rolls-Royce maybe, mm-hmm. shipped to a customer, the, the paperwork that goes with it, all the certifications weighs more than the engine. Wow. <laughs> That's yeah. incredible. Yeah, so it's it's a uh, and your son works for Rolls Royce, by the way. That's a little uh, interesting aside. Your your son is uh, working at the aerospace division of Rolls Royce. Yes, yeah, that's he's amazing. Working in uh, in metrology there. The reason I want to share this with you is because it does have a, uh, an impact on the way somebody who is from this industry or even any kind of manufacturing industry, the way they look at ancient Egyptian artifacts mm. and uh, how they interpret what they what they see. And and I think it also as well as created a bit of a, a schism, you know, between uh, manufacturers and, uh, and technophiles, you know, those who are, are really into, you know, they have some technical, technical education, even though it's not identical to uh, say another field you you will have certain experience in technology you know maybe it's media or camp, you know photography or mm-hmm. electronics or things like that and so your brain is wired a certain way mm-hmm. um, but you don't have the the shop experience of actually going down into the shop and and uh, creating these artifacts and, right and uh, <clears throat> and knowing you know knowing what can change something 
to make it uh, not workable. Mm. And it, there can be very, very slight, very slight changes uh, that will, on a, say, the geometry on a cone. Uh, it doesn't have to change very much uh, for it to be, or, uh, for it to be scrapped. Right. So if you misinterpret a drawing, you know, or something like that, uh, just uh, and and cut something out of out of print, then then you scrapped it. Mm. Uh, At what point did you become aware of some of the artifacts and the pyramids and everything in ancient Egypt? Uh, that was in 1977. Okay. Yeah, uh, and I was working as a tool and die maker, uh, and the uh, in Indianapolis. And I was uh, going. I was in a bookstore, and I saw this book got by Peter Tompkins, and uh, that's me there. Oh, wait a minute. Oh wow. Uh, okay. Yeah, we didn't talk about this. <laughs> Oh, you want to talk about? Yeah, let's talk about it. What, what is yeah, it? Don't, I don't know. If I tell you about that, I may have to kill you. <laughs> It'll be worth it. <laughs> no, it won't. <laughs> it's no big deal. But uh, yeah, there's a story behind it. <laughs> Wait, you really can't tell the story? Well, yeah, I guess I could. So, what is this plane, and where is this? That is a F one one seven, and that is a uh, the you know the stealth. Fighters, yes. Oh, yeah. In the desert, desert storm. And which part of this plane did you well, build? Well, I am not going to claim that I actually cut those parts that you see on that plane. But there was a period of time I was running a, a laser job shop in Indianapolis. A laser job shop. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which? What does that mean in English? Well, we were using high-powered lasers to cut aircraft materials. Okay. Right. So, the uh, I, I I was working for a company called Reddick Engineering, and Reddick was a great guy. Right. Mm -hmm. and I was trying to I was encouraging him to get into lasers because I was I've become fascinated with lasers, and uh, <clears throat> and he actually went to an auction and bought bought a Perkins Elmer. Uh, helium neon laser with retro reflector and target for alignments and stuff like that. <laughs> and he comes, wheels it over to my oh bench my and he goes, there you go, bloke. See what you can do with that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> right. What are one of those lasers costs? Well, I don't know what he paid for it, but it wasn't much because okay. he was a cheap bastard. Yeah, he got it on an auction. No, he was a good guy. Yeah. But a cheap bastard. Mm -hmm. Some of the best guys are cheap bastards. Aren't you, though? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so anyway, but the uh, one day a guy comes in with these panels, right? Mm. And he wanted me to set them up in the, the laser and cut these rectangular holes in them. Okay. But they were on compound angles. Uh, and it was a an array of them, right? In a square. Yeah. So I set them up, programmed the laser, and 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 cut those little squares. And then I go to uh, I see the uh, the F one seventeen, and I'm looking at the air intake on the front, and it's like those look remarkably like those panels. Wow! <laughs> I cut, 
And the engineer that brought them in, I was like, hey, what? I was always very curious about where where this stuff uh, went, you know, yeah. what, what it was used for, uh-huh. what the application was. I said, what, what are these for? What are these for? Uh-huh. And he goes, can't tell you. It's classified. Just cut them. Just cut them. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you're not cutting, you're burning. It's, the laser burns it, it doesn't cut it. Wow. Right. So, anyway, that's that story. That's amazing. Yeah, so... <laughs> The so this is the first book that you came across about uh, the pyramids in Egypt. Yeah, that was uh, nineteen. That cover is interesting looking. You see all the yeah. dirt that's coming up the side of the pyramids, all the sand or whatever it is. That is, uh, yeah, that is a uh, an artist impression. I mean, it's. Uh, it's uh, I don't. I don't think it's accurate, but it is true that the pyramids they had a lot of sand and uh, and also rubble. Because the uh, the pyramids were pretty much uh, destroyed, most of the casing stones had, had been shaken off in history. Mm. The uh, official theory is that they were they were used to build uh, mosques and mar- marinettes of Cairo, and they mm. were, they were using the whole Giza plateau as a quarry. Um, <clears throat> and the signs of of that too that. They were they were they were actually doing some quarrying out there. You see, you see evidence of uh, Roman uh, quarry marks, mm. particularly t- to the south of the second pyramid, okay, Caffrey's pyramid, okay. And you'll you'll find uh, a lot of granite blocks. Uh, some of them still in situ, up against the pyramid. Others laying out in the field to the south, and they will they will have these. Uh, <clears throat> these slots or grooves cut into them, uh, where they they try to wedge, you know, cut them into mm-hmm. pieces, and succeed in some cases. Mm. Wow. Yeah, and the interesting thing there is that um, you're talking so, about you're talking about the actual the like the dynastic Egyptians were doing that. Um, I don't think it was the dynastic Egyptians. Okay. I I believe it was. I think it was the Romans. Oh, the Romans. Okay, right. Because the, you in other parts of the world, you'll see the same kind of technique that they use for uh, for quarrying. Okay, right. Okay, got it. And then the question is, if, if the dynastic Egyptians built the pyramids, right? Why would they proceed to tear them apart? They, they te- how they tear them apart? Well, you, you know, you say, well, did the dynastic Egyptians uh, create those quarry marks? Well, they were actually stripping the, the granite away from the pyramid. And so it really doesn't make sense to build a pyramid and put all, you know, go to the trouble of putting all that beautiful granite mm. against it and then, you know, taking a hammer and chisel. Like the casing stones and stuff like that. Right. They, were, they were stripping it away. and Right, mm. right. So I think they... Uh, who was the first person to come up with the idea that the dynastic Egyptians were responsible for the pyramids? Who was the first person? Or the first group or the, where did that come from? Uh, well, that has been in the official literature for a long time. Um, Didn't you say that like it was written by Europeans, that history? Most of, yeah, the Egyptian history, most of the Egyptian history was, uh, written by earlier Egyptologists, which were uh, Europeans. 
So uh, in England, uh, Flinders Petrie, William Flinders Petrie, he was considered to be uh, England's or Britain's first Egyptologist. Uh, Mariette, August Mariette, French in, in France. Um, and so, you know, the Europeans were very active uh, in studying Egyptian artifacts and and also, you know, taking a few home with them. Yeah. A lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of them home with them. So they, uh, you know, as far as the, you know, assigning the time period for the building of the pyramids, um, I, because the pyramids were assigned to a particular king and period of time, uh, they they placed them in the the fourth dynasty. The fourth dynasty. Fourth dynasty, right? So it's like twenty twenty four hundred BC, something like that. And when did you first go to Egypt? Uh, 86. 86, yeah. okay. Right, 86. Yeah, they, uh, that was, uh, <laughs> it was different in 86. It was, uh, it was very chaotic, and uh, it was a bit of a culture shock for me. But the interesting thing was, I was, I was really nervous because I'd already, uh, I'd already been writing, you know, uh, about my, theory on the Great Pyramid, which uh, occurred to me in 1977. And so when I, when I actually came face to face with the pyramids, which anybody who writes about the pyramid must, must visit it eventually. Mm. Yeah. Right? You'd think. You'd think. Sooner rather than later. Mm-hmm. Mine was much later than I had hoped. That's the way things work. So I didn't know. So you started writing about this before you actually visited Egypt. I did, yeah. What prompted you to begin writing about it? And well, and where were you getting your information from? Well, that's the thing, you see. I was, uh, and that really heavily influenced my mind because I was looking at the, the pyramid and the schematics of the pyramid uh, as a, an engineered product. Uh, that had the precision of a machine. It's football season, baby, and you know what time it is. Time to gamble all that hard-earned money on some sports. As a better, you demand perfection, and that's where my bookie delivers. NFL, college football, and a brand-new cash-out system give you the options to bet and win all season long. First two legs of your parlay already hit. You can cash it out early and place another bet, or sweat it out and let it ride for a chance at an even bigger payday. Join the MyBookie family for an entire season filled with daily odds boosts, same-day parlays, and super contests. And this season, MyBookie has a no-strings-attached cash bonus that lets you deposit and withdraw quick. Use the promo code DJP on a deposit of $50 or more, and you can receive up to $200 cash instantly into your MyBookie account. Bet your deposit amount once, and you're ready to withdraw at any time. Again, that's promo code DJP to claim your cash deposit bonus. You can bet anything, anytime, anywhere only with my bookie it was a kind of an evolution of that that thinking um gathering all the information from uh tompkins book which included the uh, pyramids and temples of giza uh, and what was contained in there that um i became convinced that uh, the effort 
for building the Great Pyramid. It did seem to me that the, the culture uh, that built it was much more advanced in terms of uh, their technical manufacturing capabilities anyway mm -hmm. uh, and uh, than what we have been taught. Mm. So that that is clearly evident and I, and I think that has been supported by <clears throat> most engineers who are, and technicians who have been over there mm -hmm. and, and actually started to study them with, uh, with that thought in mind. Were you the first person to come up with the theory that the pyramid was a power plant? Guilty. Uh, let me back up a little bit. There was, I mean, there was a general period of time in the 70s where um, there was a, a lot of interest in something that they called pyramid power. In that the uh, the pyramids have, by, just by the shape of a pyramid, it had this uh, kind of energetic value. Uh, so there was a lot of uh, talk about that. There was a book written by Patrick Flanagan uh, back in the 70s. It was called Pyramid Power. Uh, there were other books written that referred to the Great Pyramid with talking about pyramid power. Uh, but it was a kind of a mystical kind of power rather than a practical. Mystical how so? Um, something that is not quantified in uh, physical terms or okay. three-dimensional terms. Not measured. Not measured. It's more like something that we didn't quite understand, mm. couldn't quantify. And was that based on like people standing in the pyramids? And it's based on a lot of uh, yeah, a lot of that kind of mm. information or that those experiences. It was more an experiential kind of uh, experience, an experiential experience. Uh, mm. Scratch that one. right? Uh, no, it, it was more. It was more an observation. Uh, Okay. And it, subjective. Subjective uh, in a lot of ways. Um, some of it was, you know, they tried to measure it, uh, but they were measuring effects rather than identifying the what kind okay. of energy it was. Okay. Uh, the, the sharpened razor blade experiment was very popular back then where the pyramid was said to, if you put, a razor blade inside a, uh, the pyram a pyramid shape, then the blade would stay sharper longer. What? Uh, yeah. So it had a lot of different, uh, a lot of different values. Is that uh, true? Does the, does the razor blade stay sharper longer if you keep it inside the pyramid? Um, I tried that, and you know, I, I did it. I said, "Well, I'm going to try it." So I. I used a razor blade for a little longer than I, you know, that I, I thought. But then I had a, um, you know, my, the thought in my mind was that doing those kind of experiments, those are already done. Uh, what was needed was a, a complete kind of reverse engineering mm. of the structure um, uh, <clears throat> to determine and find answers for every single part of it. Right. Uh, what was originally designed into it, um, what was introduced 
afterwards that was not a part of the design, what uh, the operation of the uh, the pyramid, what effects that may have had mm. in certain areas. And so there is a, quite a lot of um, quite a lot of information uh, <clears throat> that uh, I had to go through to find answers for. A lot of mystery. A lot of mystery. Can you do a, in your book? You do a beautiful job of explaining reverse engineering. Can you give me the rundown on how you reverse engineer something? Well, it's very simple. It's kind of it's like if somebody comes to you with a. Uh, say you're a manufacturer somebody comes to you with a, a product that already exists um, they don't have any drawings they don't have any uh, any specifications on it at all and they say I want you to make this I want you to make this exactly like this and if you do that then it's going to function the, the way I think it will okay so you make it identical to the original what do you do? <clears throat> you take the piece, you take it to the lab, you measure every single part of it, how many parts are actually in it, and then you determine <clears throat> a process on how you would reproduce it, right? Okay. And then you reproduce it, and uh, then you compare it to the original and say, okay, does this look like the original? Is it similar to the original? Is it made the same? Measure, measure to measure. Measured it, measured measure, out perfectly. Yeah. It's not just a matter of saying, looking at it and saying, yeah, well, that's close. Okay. It's like, no, you got to measure it and, and you got to be very exact. Okay. Now, the other part to reverse engineering is to try and uh, determine uh, what goes on uh, inside an engine or inside a device, a machine, a complex machine, any complex machine, how it functions uh, based on its output um, when you can't see what's inside, right? Uh -huh. So first thing you've got to do is open it up and then you try and determine through examining every single component inside it how it functions. Mm. Uh, I mean, manufacturers do that all the time. So it's basically it's the reverse of the reverse effect of engineering something, which is when you're engineering something, you say, "Hey, I want something that achieves this. I want something that performs this task." And or, that's when you're engineering. You say, "Okay, how do we perform this task? We put this thing together. We build the parts that we think are going to do this, and then measure everything, and then." Measurement, design, and function. So, Measurement, design, and function. Right. So you measure, you know, you, you analyze the design, you take measurements. And you and figure out you the function. determine what the function is. And engineering is the opposite. So engineering, engineering something is function. You have, have a particular function that you want a, a device to perform. And so right. then you do the design and then you build the product with right. using the measurements. Right. When you started writing about the pyramids and you were sort of, I guess you were sort of like seeing sort of di diagrams in the 70s had already been done and all of the chambers that are known about today had already been discovered and you sort of knew what it looked like. Yeah. And you, you just assumed that 
you know, there's no way something this precise with these weird shafts and compartments and voids was built for a tomb. You thought intuitively that it looked like something that had a function. I did. Yeah. Let me uh, let me see if I can bring up a uh, cross section of the Great Pyramid. So this is an image out of my book, and the um, the different features on the inside uh, is what uh, really caught my attention. Okay. Uh, we'll start with the <clears throat> the downward the downward shaft, which is this particular yeah shaft right here. Sorry. Um, <clears throat> so this shaft right here, over the constructed portion of it from the opening here down to the bedrock was straight within the thickness of a thumbnail. That is 20 thousandths of an inch. Okay. okay. The uh, passageway, uh, it's called the descending passage. The passageway is uh, around 40 inches square. I think it's like yeah, around 40 inches square. Mm -hmm. And it goes down 350 feet to this bedrock chamber. The entire length from the outside of 350 foot long is only out one quarter of an inch, and that is also the the excavated portion. 40 inches wide. I I assume people haven't been down there, right? Yeah, I've been down there. You, how do you get down I, there? I wouldn't get down there today, obviously, but... You go 300 feet down a 40-inch tunnel? Yeah. People people still do people this? People do that, yeah. Yeah, I mean... The, uh, is it all lit up and stuff for people to, like, is it... Yeah, there are, there are lights. There are lights along there. And, you know, you, you get down into the subterranean chamber, and some people have even gone into this shaft right here uh, that's cut even smaller than the 40 inches. There's, there was a story about that, I mean, in my book, mm -hmm. um, uh, and on a tour that I was, that I co-hosted in 2018, there was a, a, a geologist, an engineer, and actually uh, two engineers. One, um, uh, Andy Leskowitz, he went down to the end of that, of that shaft. How get, wide is that little shaft on the end of that it's, chamber? It's very small. I mean, I won't fit in it. <laughs> you might. <laughs> uh, I, I, I won't. I, when I was a lot younger, I would have. I would have gladly gone down there. But so this this cross section of the pyramid. This was available in the seventies. Everyone knew about all of these chambers and these shafts were all known then. Um, all except for I. I, right. I is the recent one which was that found is, by the Scan yeah, Pyramids Project. Yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So I, uh, the, um, the big void that was discovered in 2017. Okay. Something like that. Okay. So you saw this yeah. and what was the first thing that went through your head? It was really weird. It was very mysterious because I was like, what's going on here? You know, it's, I, 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 I'm like this. This is there's something going on here, and I don't know. I didn't yeah. know what it was. I was yeah. like, but it's just so mysterious. 
And I, I just, I then I just sat down and I started to draw these three-dimensional uh, drawings of the different chambers, right? And the, uh, and then you know, just looking at it, uh, it was, and trying to figure out uh, what each of those chambers was used for, uh, became my passion. But the thing that struck me the most is the uh, the incongruity of the the shafts, the small shafts. There's a there's a story behind those that is uh, quite exciting, really. But it, it's it's really they're really really important uh, <clears throat> to the function of the machine. So yeah, all of that struck me immediately with the the, the precision. Um, just the the angles, um, the different shapes. It's, it was all very machine-like mm. to me. And I think, you know, when it comes to saying that the pyramid was a machine uh, to uh, produce energy, um, then, yeah, I was probably the first to uh, actually put that out. What type of machine do you believe that this pyramid is and how does it work in my first book i call it was called the geezer power plant as you know and uh yes okay so the geezer power plant described the great pyramid i described it as a a coupled oscillator uh in that it was connected to the earth um its proportions were an integer to the earth and mm-hmm. it was tuned harmonically to the, vi- the the vibrations of the earth that was what i proposed mm-hmm. and as such uh it reacted to the the earth's pulse or the earth's hum vibrations and and there, through that, they were able to stimulate uh, electron flow in the central granite chamber, uh, <clears throat> and um, and produce microwave energy. So basically, I described it as a a, a maser, but it was a, a maser, like a solid state uh, le- uh, maser, a solid but, state electron harvester. <laughs> Well, that's what I ultimately I called it. Yeah, it was a electron harvester, hmm. and so that that was uh, in my first book. I didn't call it electron harvester. Oh, that was until the new book. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, I realized that you know a lot of people um, will look at the the word power plant, and the the vision that comes to their mind is like smokestacks, you know, mm-hmm. uh, right. Like, long trains of coal snaking through the, the mm-hmm. countryside to these power plants. Uh, and so, you know, kind of... Uh, and, then, and then, of course, you know, power plant, a nuclear power plant, coal power plants, right. and stuff like that. Right. So it's uh, generally associated with boiling water, cr- uh, creating steam, mm-hmm. pushing turbines and... Uh, and drawing the electrons off the uh, generators, mm-hmm. but the uh, <clears throat> this was kind of like a a different concept in terms of uh, creating creating energy or drawing energy from the earth 
directly um, without without burning fossil fuels or uh, smashing atoms. So underneath, in the cover of the Giza power plant, you have the pyramid sitting in the desert, and then underneath that, you have like the it looks like lava underneath, and then like the 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 crust of the earth. So I guess you're describing that seismic activity that's happening under inside of the earth, creating vibrations that are resonating with all the rocks in the pyramid. Yeah, that is a, that cover was a, um, created by my publisher, Bear and Company, uh, their artist. And uh, basically, it does represent what you just said. Okay. Uh, you know, I mean, as far as uh, strict accuracy to engineering uh, drawings, that you, you don't see that there, but it, it loosely gives you an idea. Okay. Right. It represents the pyramid, energy coming out of the pyramid, its connection to the earth, and energy going on inside the earth that is tapping into. So you theorized that the pyramids were harvesting energy and generating energy to power whatever civilization created them. Yeah. And how do they get power from the pyramids? How do they get it? How do they use it? Oh, how do they use it? Yeah. Um, that is a good question. It's a question I get asked a lot. The, um, the problem that we have is when when you look at the pyramids, so you go to Egypt and you you walk around the pyramids and the temples. You look you look at the skeleton of a civilization. Obviously, there's so much that's that's missing mm -hmm. uh, that has disappeared over time. Right. We don't know why. And so when you ask the question, well, what were they powering? You know, we don't find any microwave ovens out in the desert. So, uh, <clears throat> you know. And you probably won't, you know. The uh, the only thing that really survived from that period of time uh, was... Um, the rocks. The rocks. Yeah. Right? So you, you... And, you know, some other materials, but the rocks uh, basically survived. Mm. And it's a matter of, you know, then again, you know, it's like, okay, so we what we're left with is the rocks. So mm -hmm. what do we do? We take measurements. We... Uh, look at the design. We uh, we analyze the effects uh, of certain spaces, like the king's chamber. The effects of that chamber, with the acoustic effects of it, the uh, acoustic effects of the grand gallery. Uh, <clears throat> so there's a lot, a lot that we can we can study mm -hmm. um, to pr try and come up with some some answers as to how it how it functioned and what it did and it's a, an evolving i would i would call it like it's i, I would say that it's a uh, kind of like a, an international brainstorming session right. so I, I i i i mean if you ask me what my whole role is in in this uh in this thing i, I would say i i'm just like i'm a mechanic that comes across an engine in the desert and I'm trying to figure out what the engine does, right? And so in order to figure it out, I need a lot of help. I need uh, the assistance of experts in mm. different fields, physicists, electrical engineers, right. acoustic engineers, mm -hmm. you know, 
geologists, materials, engineers, all of those right. uh, people have uh, have input. And so that's what I did. I, I talked to civil engineers, I talked to electrical engineers, I talked to mechanical engineers as I was developing the uh, the theory for the book. Okay. And when you first traveled to Egypt and went inside the pyramid, what did you discover from your experience, from your personal experience being there, going inside the chambers? Did that have any sort of effect? I'm sure it did on some of the writing you did previous to that. Profound effect. Mm -hmm. Profound effect. I mean, the uh, Just the experience of being there is just mind-blowing. Um, whether you're writing about it or, you know, just a general tourist. I mean, I've seen people really affected tremendously just by, you know, going in the Great Pyramid. But the, uh, as far as how, did it affect, did it affect my uh, perception or my ideas or uh, what the Great Pyramid was? Um, I was worried, I was extremely worried that it would when I went there, and I, and I, you know, I was on on my way to Egypt, and I'm thinking, well, oh, done, what have you done now? You know, you, you're you going to Egypt, and uh, well, if it's all not as you, you read, it's something totally different, and you're just going to leave thinking, okay, well, I just wasted, you know, six years of my life or whatever. All right. Uh, so... Yeah, I was I was concerned about that, mm -hmm. and um, that actually kept me away from the Great Pyramid. I I I didn't go to into the Great Pyramid for three days. It was like I was you know eyeing it warily from a distance. <laughs> I was like, yeah, didn't want to go up there. You're afraid. You're yeah, afraid that might kill you. Kill yeah, your dream. Yeah, mm, yeah. There was a bit of nervousness there. There was also a lot of, you know, uh, I don't know, I don't know, just acclimatizing to the uh, to the culture there right. was was kind of difficult back in the '86. Mm -hmm. It's a lot easier these days. So, um, but anyway, the third day I was there, fourth day I went up and uh, paid to go in and uh, went in, uh, made, did a few checks, and I was. It was like awe-inspiring, and and the you know it just the, the different dimension that it provides you. It's not just a um, you know a clinical review of a of of books, many different books that I that I uh, accessed over the years when I was studying it. It was it wasn't just a clinical. Uh, uh, analysis at that point it, it became uh, a living thing it was kind of like you know right. a totally different dimension mm. it's one thing to read a story it's, it's another thing to live it right it's like yeah okay so I'm looking at lines on paper and now I'm inside those lines right and then after that I I went outside and pondered on uh, pondered on the whole thing and started to wander around the plateau. But uh, that's when I started to look. I started to look at uh, a lot of the 
casing, this casing stones, and the stones on the south of the um, of the Kafra's pyramid, the second pyramid. Mm-hmm. So I'm walking around there, and I'm looking at these, what I consider to be really, really sharp and flat, sharp angles, uh, sharp corners, very well cut stone with uh, flat surfaces. <clears throat> And then some other unusual shaped stones that looked like they were extremely precise. Uh, but this was in '86, and I, I didn't have any uh, any tools or instruments with me to to see if indeed what I was looking at was actually precise. Right. And you can't really tell by, by looking at the photograph. Just. Mm-hmm. Uh, just how, or looking at it with your eyes, just exactly how how precise it is. You have to measure it. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. So that's what I, uh, when I left, I uh, I had that in mind that next time I go, I need to take some instruments with me and check check things out a little closer. And then how long did it take before you went back? 1995. Oh, wow. Okay. <clears throat> it was in, you remember in 19... 19- 93, uh, uh, Rudolf Gantenbrink did the exploration of the southern shaft in the Queen's Chamber. Okay. Who okay. was Rudolf Gantenbrink? Gantenbrink was, was a, um, a, a German robotics engineer. And he was, um, he was commissioned by the, the German mission uh, in Cairo to uh, clean out the shafts because they wanted to uh, install some ventilation in them to protect the monument. Um, so he was he was contracted to go to Egypt. Um, send up, he designed and built a robot to explore the shafts. And particularly, it was the king's chamber that he was focused on was actually clearing it out and then installing fans. Okay. Do you have any images of this? Okay. So if we look at this one right here. Okay. <clears throat> okay. What you see here <clears throat> is this is the uh, southern shaft opening, which has uh, particular significance uh, to the theory, the microwave theory. Okay. The... Uh, this is an opening in the south wall, and it's directly opposite an opening in the north wall. It's right here. Okay? Mm-hmm. So this opening here um, has a dimensions of 8.4 by 4.8 inches. Oh, wow. So the um, generally the guidelines for creating a waveguide uh, are the the height the, is about half half the width of the length. So, what know, is a waveguide? A waveguide carries microwaves. And what is that used for today, commercially? Uh, communications, for the most part. Like, for example, what? Oh, just about everything that we get. I mean, you got these microwave towers. Uh, Try and pull up uh, a microwave horn antenna on the internet. 
Okay. So you have those. Uh, they're all different shapes and sizes. And, you know, there is a, obviously, I, I don't work in the microwave industry. So where so where is the like, waveguide here? Well, okay. that's, that's a horn antenna with a waveguide, right? And there are some where you have curvatures on the interior surface. But you see the waveguide itself, the, the horn, is, uh, receives a broader signal and then narrows it down to the, uh, the waveguide and transmits it through a waveguide. Okay. All right. So that's what we're looking at when, we, when we're seeing those little shafts. The, the dimensions of those are... If you, if you believe what I'm telling you. Okay. Right. <laughs> I believe it, man. I believe you. <laughs> so when I saw that, it was like, okay, that looks like a horn antenna right <clears throat> and that's in the south south wall of the the king's chamber directly opposite is a a shaft mm -hmm. where the width is uh, uh, almost twice the di the dimension of the height so you you do have that rectangular kind of opening it's 4.8 okay. high and uh, 8.4 inches okay point. So essentially, the the width ha has to be related to the wavelength of the uh, atoms that are used uh, to create the microwave signal. Okay. Okay. And the wavelength of hydrogen is twenty one centimeters, or eight point three oh nine inches. So it's almost 8.4 inches. Close. So if you had, like, if you had a, uh, a some kind of a liner in there, maybe gold-plated liner, uh, then you would have a, a just a... Ah, uh, so if these things could have been plated or, or, or coated on, on the surface, yeah, it would yeah, be a little yeah, smaller. But, but, yeah, it would be just a little smaller. So it would be, fit. it's the perfect dimensions for a waveguide for hydrogen. It's very, very close. Well, I mean, just uh, as it is, it's close. Okay. But they, they could be lined. Now, uh, <clears throat> of course, you know, critics will say, well, there's been no, nothing found in in the uh, archaeological record that would indicate that those things even existed, ever existed. And that's, and that's maybe true, except for one uh, plate that was found by uh, Pering, Petrie, on the south side of the uh, uh, Great Pyramid near the shaft, and that is a, a an iron plate. And on one surface of this iron plate there is uh, signs of uh, gold that it was gold plated at one time so there's two shafts going out of the king's chamber right which is in the upper middle of the pyramid right and so yeah h and j on this diagram right these are what we were just looking at these waveguides right allegedly um and one of them brings something in and then it goes through the king's chamber, and then the other one shoots it out. Now, well, something happens in between. Yeah, something happens in between inside that king's chamber, G. Right. What happens inside the king's chamber? Okay, so inside the king's chamber, what you have is a... <clears throat> um, 
it's a resonant chamber. The fascinating features of the king's chamber are that the it's constructed of granite, uh, red uh, or pink granite from Aswan. Is that unique for other the cha- for the other cha- chambers in the pyramid? Uh, yeah, that's, this is the only chamber in the pyramid that has granite. Okay. So the uh, the granite was brought from Aswan, uh, which is 500 miles away. Okay. From where the pyramid was. How built. much granite is in that chamber? Oh, thousands of tons. Thousands of tons of granite. You're talking, yeah, you're talking thousands of tons. The, there are like 40, 43 uh, beams uh, above the, the uh, chamber itself. Those 43 beams weigh between 45 and 70 tons each. Are you talking about those beams that are above the chamber? Right. The uh, The beams are, are said to be uh, uh, relieving chambers. You know, they're stacked in a series above. There's mm-hmm. five layers uh, and, a, and a space between each one. Mm-hmm. And it looks like the bottom of those, the beams are perfectly square on the bottom and edges, and the tops of them are very rough. Right. And uh, so... In the Giza power plant, I proposed that those beams were intentionally made that way, um, and it wasn't a lack of attention, rather than it was a uh, very specific focused attention mm-hmm. on the beams to make sure that they were tuned to a particular frequency when struck. So you have you have a situation where the uh, sound input into that chamber or vibration into that chamber mm-hmm. would resonate, would cause the granite to resonate and the beams above would resonate also to those frequencies. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and the other interesting thing about the, uh, the King's Chamber assembly is that um, it is totally separate from the core masonry. You know, in a structure, you would like tie things, tie, tie things into the, the core masonry or the core structure for stability and stuff like that. There is a space um, all around the, 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 the king's chamber separating it from the, the limestone blocks that, uh, comprise the core chamber. Really? Right. So uh, <clears throat> you have that particular uh, particular feature. Uh, Tom Danley, who was a, an acoustic engineer, uh, he did some acoustic testing in uh, 1997, I believe it was the time he went over there. And he... Um, he he reported that he had uh, he was testing doing a sweep at very very low frequencies, very low frequencies, uh, infrasonic, and the uh, the frequencies that he picked up were forming an F sharp chord, so they were musical in nature. The F sharp is considered to be the 
or by the Hopi Indians tune their flutes to the F sharp chord. They they consider it to be the, the the voice of Mother Earth. It is the frequency of the earth. And what was he doing in the king's chamber to get them to resonate and vibrate like that? To get the blocks to make the sound? Nothing. No, he wasn't. Um, when he was he, just in there. No, when he picked up those frequencies, everything was turned off and there was no apparent uh, <clears throat> force to cause it to vibrate. So this was just sort of like the white noise or the background this noise? This was like a yeah, background uh, frequencies of the room. See, in 95, I, I took over, I took a uh, some tests inside the, the king's chamber and I wanted to, I took a uh, <clears throat> an RF counter with me. I wanted to check the frequencies, see if there's any uh, EM frequencies coming off the granite, and uh, <clears throat> and the uh, I wanted all the lights turned off while I was in there. So I paid good money to get in in the Great Pyramid, have a long time in it. Mm-hmm. You rented it out by yourself. Wow, I was by myself and uh, private party. Private, private party, yeah. Uh, and so, anyway, um, the lights weren't turned off, and they and I, I had a recorder with me, and I was recording the whole time I was inside the, the king's chamber. And you know, of course, all this is it's not scientific; it's all anecdotal, right? And and so when I um, I. I got a little impatient waiting for the lights to turn off. So I uh, I took, got my flashlight and I went out to what they call the Great Step in uh, at the top of the Grand Gallery right there, uh, standing right there, and I yelled down to the guards outside, please turn off the lights. So, and then I scurried back into the chamber before they actually turned the lights off because I didn't want to be get caught in the dark. Mm-hmm. Well, um, the interesting thing is when when I uh, got back to my room later and and, and played back that that recording, um, I had a also I had a a a guitar tuner with me, right? Yeah. So. You know, measured frequencies, and and uh, it picked up um, my footsteps on the granite. The granite was ringing at the frequency of 440. It was an A on on the on the musical scale. An A. A. Yeah, 440. So uh, <clears throat> that that was that was recorded. Just me, just my feet striking. What is the, the significance floor. of it being an A? It's all about frequency and resonance. Okay. And vibration, right? So if you've got energy coming through the pyramid, uh, you're collecting energy in the grand gallery, um, <clears throat> which is this structure right here. Yes. Right. Converting vibrations into airborne sound; those are transmitted into this chamber right here and resonate in this chamber. Uh, that is causing all that granite to vibrate. Okay. And, Right. Okay, so let me see if I got this right. Number A is a subterranean chamber, which is picking up vibrations deep within the earth. That is transmitting 
vibrations up those shafts. There's two shafts, one that goes like out of the pyramid to the right, and then one that goes up into the grand gallery. And then it goes through the grand gallery into the king's chamber. Yeah, I mean, okay, the prime impulse in the in the subchamber, which is A. Okay, so yes. if you are if you're causing or driving a pulse into the earth uh, and eliciting a response, uh, then it's that's not designed to necessarily be collected in just in the, the subchamber. Right. It's, okay. It's designed to affect the whole area under the Great Pyramid, and for vibrations to flow from the Earth throughout the thirteen acres of the Great Pyramid. Okay. And then flow through to uh, the Grand Gallery, and also. Uh, the, the king's chamber. So you're collecting those vibrations throughout. <clears throat> the um, and then converting so, those vibrations into airborne sound, stimulating uh, electron flow from the granite. And I identified uh, piezoelectric effect as being a uh, a principal. Uh, mechanism for electron flow out of the granite that changed that changed uh, after i started to do my research on the on giza the tesla connection so what is the specific function of a the chamber the subterranean chamber uh in the giza power plant theory a is a chamber that contains the means to drive vibrations into the earth. Okay, so uh, there was a there was something inside the chamber underneath the inside period. Inside the chamber, yes. That yeah. would vibrate the earth. Yeah, and also at the same time, probably the pyramid. So it would serve two functions. Uh, You'd be sending vibrations not just into the earth, but also uh, into the pyramid itself. Okay. So the, yeah, the the subchamber being. Um, housing the the pulse generator mm -hmm. which um there are different proposal on proposals on that how that was accomplished okay there's one that's uh uh uses hydraulics uh hydraulic pulse generator uh john cadman who is a uh, marine engineer out in bellingham washington who's mm -hmm. a supporter of that and then there is the uh the Tesla version, which is um, what he called a, an earthquake machine. Yes, this was a, a fascinating part of your right. book. I had like no clue. Electro about electromechanical device that uh, that sends timed pulses into a structure, whether you know whether it's a, a beam on a bridge or. Uh, an I beam in a in a building in New York, which I think he it, yeah, there's reports that he did that and almost brought the building down. Yeah, there was a story. You told the story in your book. Right, the story was fascinating. They were yeah. they were in the basement of a huge building in New York, and they turned on the generator, and the building started falling down around them. For all the time that we have been alive, the U.S. dollar has been the primary currency, but that may not be the case for much longer. 
China is set to dethrone the dollar, and possibly much sooner than you think. And even the world's biggest economies are already ditching the dollar for the yen, collapsing the U.S. currency, causing unprecedented inflation and crashing markets. And if that wasn't enough, this paves the way for the government to take total control over all of your money with a new digital dollar. Now is the time to take total control of your money and not let your life savings become a casualty of the currency wars. And you can do it using the only precious metal dealer that I trust, American Hartford Gold. They will show you how to protect your savings and retirement accounts by diversifying your wealth portfolio into physical gold and silver with the finest products, amazing customer service, and a buyback commitment. But you don't have to take my word for it. American Hartford Gold has a five-star rating from thousands of reviews and an A-plus from the Better Business Bureau. American Heart for Gold supports content like this that is committed to bringing you the truth. And if you tell them I sent you, they'll give you up to $5,000 in free silver on your first order. So call them now. Click on the link in the description or call 855-679-1326. That's 855-679-1326 or text CONCRETE, K-O-N-C-R-E-T-E, to 65532. Again, the phone number is 855-679-1326. Two six or text concrete to six five five three two. Now back to the show. Right. Well, I don't think anything fell off, but it was threatening to. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had to. T- he had to break the machine. I don't think he. Yeah, even... he smashed it with a hammer, right? <laughs> yes. And got the hell out of there. Yeah. God. Well, resonance is a, a really powerful, powerful force when you consider it. You know, when you uh, <clears throat> when you impart energy into a uh, a system that is uh, already has a certain amount of energy and is vibrating of a particular frequency, and you catch it at a a node, right, a, a high node. Uh, an example would be a pendulum or a swinging ball. Okay, so the swinging ball comes back to you; it reaches the arc height, and then you apply energy right there, then put energy into it and it goes further. And so you can start out very, very, with very, very small movements of this. Could be a ton, you know. Um, Maybe you just move it an inch and then it swings back to you and you give it the same amount of force and it moves two inches. And then it comes back to you and you step back and each time you're stepping back and by the time you know you can build up a quite a quite a swing on that ball mm. um, without you know going up to it and having to smack it with a hammer and probably break the hammer but the, <laughs> but the, the the point is is that a small child could um, uh, create quite an effect just just by uh, using resonance and then you know the whole idea of accumulated uh, energy what was the pur- building what was the purpose of Tesla's earthquake machine what was he trying to accomplish with that um, <clears throat> he he actually uh, uh, believed and wrote that uh, he thought that you could relieve uh, earthquakes or the, the the severity of earthquakes in the earth and that was it was interesting that was uh, reported uh, I hadn't read that when I wrote the Giza power plant because I had made that uh, observation in the Giza power plant that perhaps you know with a system for 
drawing energy out of the earth, uh, one of the effects of that would be the energy that is accumulating uh, in the earth's plates where they push mm. push together to the point of breaking or you know a rapid release where you, where you have uh, seismic waves moving out. So going around with this machine and basically creating little mini earthquakes to avoid little some big earthquakes. earthquake down the line. Yes. Ah, okay. Yes. Okay, interesting. Yeah, that that was one uh, but that was one of his his uh his ideas about the use of of his machine. Okay. So basically that was in alignment with what I uh, what I was thinking. Okay, and so you you imagine something like this was down there in the subterranean chamber? Yeah. Okay. Possibly. Yeah. Okay. I think everything is everything is uh, open to uh, further research and input from other specialists. I mean, right. obviously, if you're going to start playing around with the planet, you're going to have you're going to have to uh, have geophysicists involved, and geologists involved, yeah. seismologists involved. Uh, you know, you can't just willy-nilly go in there and, mm -hmm. and start uh, <laughs> putting vibrations into the earth in a great quantity. I, right. I don't know. Yeah. yeah, could be dangerous. Uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's it's like um, you, you have to be, I think, fully aware of what what the yes. outcomes are going to be. Yes. The positive and the negative. Mm -hmm. so, you know, they say, okay, free energy. Is there such a thing as free energy? Um, well, the energy is there. It's free. You know, just go get it. Well, it's going to cost you to get it. And then it may cost you to clean up after you get it. You know, it's just like, you know, the uh, nuclear energy or uh, fossil fuel energy and all that. There's always a cost associated with it. Right. 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 But the thing with the... Uh, <clears throat> With this, the electron harvester, and the most significant discovery um, was made by Friedemann Freund, Dr. Friedemann Freund. Who is he? Friedemann Freund, he's uh, a physicist, <clears throat> works at NASA, um, and he uh, was studying earthquake lights. And his objective was to determine uh, if by monitoring the Earth at these uh, seismic hotspots, um, if if earthquake lights could actually be a early warning system uh, for Im you know impending earthquakes, um, <clears throat> and so he was studying the earthquake lights of uh, different areas around the world. Okay, and uh, there was one particular place that uh, it became it became apparent that uh, there was an earthquake coming and that was in Italy it was called the Achilla, Achilla earthquake but his discovery uh, is really the uh, I, I think the most important discovery in in this century or in the last century <laughs> it's, it's because you have uh, you have a uh, a source of electrons that's directly under our feet 
And so what I, what I tried to do in a gaze of the Tesla solution was to highlight the idea that, you know, we have been making advances in semiconductor physics, you know, transistors and things of that nature. And we uh, make a, a quantum leaps in understanding and function of devices that, um, that uh, control the way electrons behave within a particular device, like a cell phone or a laptop, something like that. Right. You know, all of those are uh, amazing advances, right? All those electrons are coming through wires and generated, for the most part, from traditional power plants uh, that are operating uh, principally the same way they have for over 100 years. Right. Right. And so they basically boil water, create steam, push turbine blades, rotate generators, and <clears throat> harvest the electrons, and then put it in, you know, transmit it into the grid. Okay. Here, it's to recognize that all those electrons that you want are actually under your feet. And there are some areas of the world, in, of the country, that are, are more active in terms of earthquake lights than others, and certain areas that are more seismically unstable than others. And so, you know, the question is, should a serious study uh, be funded or followed? to investigate whether we can actually access those electrons directly um, and use them rather than going through the process of extraction of fossil fuels, burning, you know, all the ancillary costs that you have, transportation and stuff like that, <clears throat> pollution. Hmm. But here you have uh, a battery under your feet. Why could we tap into it and draw that energy up? So what what does uh, uh, Dr. Freund do uh, about his theory? He studied uh, he studied the effects. He studied in his laboratory how to generate electron flow in different types of rocks, igneous rocks. Uh, like granite. What is the what is the meaning of igneous rocks? What does that mean? Uh, it means it was formed as magma in the earth, uh, as opposed to sedimentary rocks. Okay. 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 Got it. Yeah. So the igneous rocks are uh, basically they contain these peroxy defaults in the minerals, and when they are stressed or pressure is put on them, mm -hmm. they will migrate to the surface very rapidly. And, <clears throat> and he's demonstrated in his lab that he can take a, a, a granite block or bean of granite, he put it in a hydraulic press, equipped it with um, electrodes and a monitor, a you know, oscilloscope, 
put pressure on one end, squeezed it, and electrons flowed from one pole to the other, one end to the other. Wow. And he was able to measure it. That's an explanation for the earthquake lights. This is happening under, deep inside the earth right. near exactly. vault, near these seismic areas where there's right. where there's fault lines and stuff like that. And when these p- giant rocks are being crammed together, these electrons are being released and they shoot out through the rock, up through the surface of the earth and into the sky. Yeah. You want to show a, a YouTube video? Yes. Which video should we show? Um, it's on YouTube. Okay. What's it called? It's Freedom and Freund. And is um, TED Talk in Christchurch, New Zealand. Okay. Friedman Freund, TED Talk in Christchurch, New Zealand. Okay. Is that Dr. No, Friedman? That's uh, Dr. Friedman. Yeah. Okay. He's uh, up in his 80s now. He's a wonderful guy. came to Christchurch to talk about earthquakes, and there's no better place in the world, I would say, than to talk about earthquakes. In particular, I want to give you hope. So, if we look at the photo of the New Zealand islands, it looks so peaceful and placid. You see Christchurch on the left side. But on certain days, occasionally, The earth speaks to us with a very violent voice. And many of you have gone through this experience. I would like to present you with the question, what if we would be able to see these earthquakes coming days before they arrive? Now, I worked for the past 30 years at uh, NASA in California. Before this, I was professor in Germany. And during that time, I was doing things that had no relationship. This guy was an Operation Paperclip, was he? Earthquakes. I was studying single crystals. I started out working on very, very simple single crystals, totally, as I said, unrelated, never dreaming that what I would be working on could one day have influence and importance for understanding earthquakes. Magnesium oxide, the simplest um, oxide material that exists. And I worked on it for a number of years. And I discovered something that everybody else had overlooked, had missed. And that is a defect, a type of defect in these crystals. And I should say a defect in our world of Solid-state physics is something that occurs. Not, it's not a crack. It is something on the atomic, on the subatomic. What I discovered was that in the crystal structure, like here on the lower left side, there are these defects that are totally invisible. We are have, still now. We have no way how to directly observe these peroxy defects. But when we do nasty things to the crystal, they fall apart and produce electric charge carriers. Then I found the same kind of defects in other materials, including natural minerals, either from the crust or from the earth mantle. Almost every mineral seems to have these. And if minerals have them, then of course, 
rocks would have them. So now I want to show you what you can do when you play around with rocks. So here, you oh, see wow. a four meter long piece of granite in my laboratory at NASA Ames. And all what I'm doing here is I put some contacts to the rock at the far end and the contact up here and I squeeze here. In the moment I start squeezing here, a current starts to flow through the unstressed rock. And if I put an ampmeter, a picoampmeter in the circuit, I can measure an electric current. And here you see this example measured from this particular four meter long piece of granite. In the moment, the green curve is the load. In the moment I start to load the rock, a current begins to flow. The current rises very, very rapidly at low stress levels, saturates, stays constant. Actually, we have measured this over months. The current continues to flow if we keep it uh, loaded. This is a behavior that is reminiscent of semiconductor, the things from which you build transistors and hence available in all electronics. Here at the bottom, you see schematic on the right-hand side, the stress activates electrons and holes. Holes is a name for the defect electrons. These are electronic particles that are generated and that are actually necessary to be able to produce a transistor. Mm. And the, we found out that the electrons have to stay in, this, in the stress rock volume while the holes can flow out. They flow out at about 100 meter per second which is about the speed of a jet landing in an airport. They are very fast. They are propagate through it. And in this particular experiment, the electrons have to come around through the wire and shake hands at the front end of this rock. Now, this is a combination of a semiconductor behavior, the formation of electrons and holes, and of a electrochemical battery, that means we can separate the positive holes flowing through the rock from the electron, from the negative holes that flow through the wire. This is exciting and this is new. So now let's do a Gedanken experiment. Take this rock and imagine that it would be sitting vertically in the Earth's crust and that this rock is not four meters long, but a kilometer, five kilometer, 10 kilometers long, 30, 50, 100 kilometers long, if we are in a subduction zone, like you have it here on the North Island. If that end of that volume of rock is being stressed by the enormous tectonic forces in the Earth, electricity is generated and under certain conditions, this electricity flows out of the stressed rock volume and into the surrounding rock. And we have means to see these things flowing over distance of tens of kilometers under natural conditions. These are amazing processes that had never before been properly understood. So all these things we can now use to learn something about the stress state of rocks deep below our feet, far beyond 
the direct reach, we have to deduce you their presence from these indirect measurements. We can establish these causality ranges linked together by chemistry and by physics. So I wanted to briefly mention this infrared emission. The infrared emission is when the charge carriers come to the surface, they can recombine. During this recombination, uh, these charge carriers release energy, and these two oxygens on, that you show there up, they become suddenly about 20,000 degrees hot vibrationally, and they emit bursts of infrared radiation. But one characteristic feature that these charge carriers try to accumulate mostly on mountaintops, on hillsides, not in the valley. So now I want to show you here a result from a PhD thesis of Luca Pirotti in Italy, who had analyzed, I think, 18 months of Italy. Every night he looked for these uh, anomalies. And pr uh, prior to this earthquake in L'Aquila in 2009, he identified this anomaly that you see here in red with the loss of life of more than 300 people. And to the left and to the right, there are mountain ranges. Uh, the one, the Gran Sasso, are the highest mountains in the middle of, of Italy. And in the next slide, you will see draped over exactly the same, this map of the thermal infrared anomalies as they are measured three days before that disastrous earthquake. So if anybody would have had the funding and the knowledge to analyze that how important the analysis is of these phenomena in real time, three days before the earthquake, they would have issued a warning and said, something is brewing, something must be happening 10, 20 kilometers below our feet. Now, next I want to talk about these unipolar pulses. Unipolar pulses are strange phenomena that suddenly, within a fraction of a second, enormous energy, electromagnetic energy, is emitted from deep below, only about 100, 150, 200 milliseconds long, shoots up and comes down with a little wiggle and disappears. They are not yet fully understood. We're working on it. Now here, a situation where a friend of mine, colleague, Jorge Hero, is, has operated for the past two and a half years, a station consisting of two search coil magnetometers, extremely uh, sensitive. And what you see there is in the subduction zone, there is a, a ridge, a submarine ridge. That's where earthquakes are being generated. That ridge is subducted and disappears underneath the edge of the South American continent. Now here is, I think it is running. So um, here again the map, and you will see in a moment uh, how these, these unipolar pulses are generated. And they are marked here by, this is a period of about two weeks that you see displayed, and here they come a few 10 minutes distance from each other in, in groups. Then there is a day, a day and a half of silence, no unipolar pulse. The next group is coming, again, a little silent, or there is another blip from somewhere far away. And then there is a third group of these pulses coming. By now we have 2,500 
more than 2,500 of these pulses, and they were associated with 22 magnitude 4 earthquakes, 3.5 to 4 earthquakes that happened in this subduction zone between a depth of 25 to 65 kilometers. And they were, Jorge Hero is able to predict a time window of 40 hours, three to six days in advance, depositing the information in a closed envelope with the president of his university. And in all 22 cases that he has analyzed, he was right. So this is quite remarkable. Wow. Can we come to the next slide, please? It doesn't. Oh, yeah. So I've started my presentation with asking, what if we can see earthquakes coming? And I think I can say, hope I've convinced you that by understanding the physics, and this is really new physics, of how rocks respond deep below to the increase of stress and how, what they are producing, electricity, and how this electricity uh, propagates through the Earth's crust, we can learn about the buildup of stress, and we will be able to say, yes, we can see them coming days before they, are, uh, they will arrive. We cannot be sure that every stress buildup will reach to an earthquake because sometimes the Earth says, I don't feel like rupturing, I feel like sliding. <laughs> and we see the precursors and people would say, you have had a false alarm. No, we have not had a false alarm. The Earth just had another day, another feeling. But in most cases, one thing which can make for sure, in the future, there will be no major earthquake that will hit any place in the world where we have the capability of, of measuring these precursory signals will hit unannounced, unforewarned. Wow. So the element of utter surprise that has been a plague until recently, and including the Christchurch uh, earthquakes, will be over. Thank you so much. Is anybody using this? This stuff to detect earthquakes now? No, that's another story altogether. Um, the um, seismologists uh, are pretty much ignoring it from uh, what I can understand. And why are they, they ignoring they, this? They prefer the uh, traditional mechanical ways of uh, detecting earthquakes. That's bizarre that all the mountain ranges surrounding that right. city were lit up. Yeah, I know. By the earthquake right. lights, right? Yeah, right. God, and that's exactly that's exactly analogous to what would have happened within the pyramids with all of with those vibrations shooting up through those giant that giant pile of rocks that they built in the desert. Exactly right. So the pyramids so, would have glowed similar. Yeah, I believe so. The uh, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, they, the, there has been an electrical phenomenon uh, detected in the pyramids, anyway. I mean, the uh, you know, as far as uh, people noticing, uh, you know, like tingling. There was one story about the uh, uh, a William Siemens who was climbing the pyramid with a guide and he detected a ringing in his ear and, you know, 
mm. uh, little buzzing on his finger. He fashioned what they call a Leyden jar, which is an acu- kind of an accumulator of uh, an electrical charge. He accumulated a charge, yeah, and the guard was uh, the guide who was uh, kind of bothering him. I think uh, thought he was practicing witchcraft or whatever. And so he he just held out the jar and shot the guard. The guard went howling. The guide went howling down the the, the side of the pyramid. He was <laughs> so there's a, that was what that's one of the anecdotal uh, stories that you get. And I mean that's rough, mm. you know. So how did you and Friedman Freud connect? So I had uh, on my 2018. Uh, Lost Technologies tour in Egypt. I had some really brilliant minds with me. Uh, one of them is Robert Vorter, who is a uh, sound engineer. Okay. And uh, <clears throat> and uh, there was a geologist there. There was a. Uh, he looks like a sound engineer. Yeah, he's a <laughs> front of house sound engineer. <laughs> Total roadie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, Super geek. <laughs> yeah, yep. He looks like a sound guy, right? Right, Steve. He's also got a degree in archaeology. By the oh, way. does he really? Oh, yeah, wow. Good for him. That's besides the point. Uh, that's the least of his shames. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but no, the uh, and so I connected with Robert actually when I was uh, writing the Giza power plant because there okay. was, uh, you know, an aspect to the. Uh, the function of sound within the pyramid, and uh, I had uh, been told about Robert by a, a gentleman called Stephen Mailer, who was a friend of his at the time. Mm-hmm. So I called him up, and I uh, I just asked him a few questions, and he was yeah 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 obviously yeah talked about you know the harmonics in the Great Pyramid and other pyramids. Um, so. In like 2016, uh, we lost contact. We lost touch for quite a while. Um, 2016, I called him, and basically, uh, at that time, I was pondering on a, on writing another book, right? Uh, because a lot had happened since the first book, and people were bugging me. When are you going to write? It? When are you going to update the Giza power plant? I was like, maybe never. I don't know, you know. Um, but uh, I, uh, I really didn't think I had enough material to do a full book. It may have been a, you know, a, a new edition of, mm-hmm. of the, the Giza power plant. Uh, and so, um, I went out to visit with him and, uh, spent some time with him chatting. Uh, we arranged the, um. Uh, to to do the the tour in 2018, uh, Eric Wilson, who's an aerospace engineer, uh, he he came along. Uh, Adrian Longan, who was a geologist, he came along. There was uh, entrepreneurs. There was other en- engineers. Um, a lot of a lot of technical type people who signed up for the tour because it was just it was basically just focused on uh, technology. Mm-hmm. There was no, no other subject matter, you know. But, uh, <clears throat> anyway, so while we were there, we were talking about the uh, the the role that piezoelectricity plays in the in the uh, 
production of electron flow in the granite in the king's chamber. And uh, Adrian Lungen, who uh, said, well, you know, the, it's reported in, uh, in some books that it's 55% of the, of the granite is quartz crystal, uh, silicon quartz crystal. To, uh, in order for the piezoelectric effect to work, the, um, the quartz crystal has to be stressed across a particular axis, otherwise it, it doesn't work. Um, and because of the random orientation of the quartz in the granite, um, it was seen to not be a very efficient way to generate electricity. Uh, <clears throat> also, as a geologist, Adrian uh, suggested that the, the, the amount of quartz uh, in, the, in the granite was a lot less than, than what has been uh, discussed in the past. It was yeah, like, initially you thought it was like 80 to 90% and it uh, ended up being... Initially it was uh, 55%. Okay. That, that's what I rolled in the Giza power plant based on what I had read in, in other books. Okay. And then... Uh, he said it may be more like 20%, maybe okay. less than that. Okay. So uh, that kind of shut the, uh, the piezoelectric uh, aspect uh, out of the water. Okay. And uh, But I was like, there has to be something else. There has to be something else, right? And so Robert was just doing, he's, he lives in... Uh, he lives in San Jose, California, uh, in the foothills overlooking Silicon Valley, right? Mm -hmm. And so he's poking around doing some research on on granite and minerals and piezoelectricity. And then he, uh, one of his searches, he came up with uh, Friedman Freund and started to look at his stuff. Okay. Right? And so then he calls Friedman up and... Uh, and they arranged to meet, and he went into NASA to uh, to meet with him and gave a presentation to the whole NASA group, and it was all about uh, the pyramids and you know the uh, <laughs> the uh, energetic uh, purpose for the pyramids and the resonance and acoustics of the pyramids, and also the very very fine. Uh, manufacturing and machining of the the parts that go into it. Um, and he presented all this stuff in front of a bunch of NASA scientists? Yeah. What was the reception he got from them? They're fascinated. I mean, I, I've talked to them too. Uh, I, they, had a, they had a group um, it's called the Geocosmos Group. It's, it's not a NASA group, but it is a uh, a think tank that uh, Friedman kind of formed to and to study uh, planetary issues, you know, um, phenomenon like like earthquake lights and other other mm -hmm. subjects. But these this group is comprised of scientists from all over the world, and uh, so Robert was invited to join that group. And then when I started to get into uh, writing uh, uh, the Giza Power 2 <laughs> or the Tesla connection as it finally became known. I, uh, I 
actually reached out to Friedemann because I I was uh, <clears throat> trying to get come to grasp with his research because if you read his scientific papers, they're heavily uh, involved with. There's a lot of math to it, you know, obviously, and and so most of that was above my head. But as you saw in that little uh, video, uh, he was. He was talking to lay people and presenting his theory in, uh, to lay people in general terms, even right. though there were formulas in some of his slides. He, he was not uh, speaking, you know, above their head. You know what I mean? Yes. So he is he completely on board with your theory? You know, I he supports he supports me. I think as a person, I've never directly asked him. If he uh, supports what I am, what I'm doing, um, I have there's a uh, an appendix in my book that uh, is a transcript of that Christchurch lecture, and so I got permission from him to include it in my book, mm -hmm. and he actually went through it and edited it for clarity and you know. Is that something you think he has to worry about, sort of like backing up your theory, being being somebody who's employed by NASA? You think as he might be labeled as like a a kook or something if he uh, if I he started saying that the pyramid was a power plant? Yeah, he probably would be. I mean that that is normally uh, that's normally people's reaction, but NASA like a you know a typical reaction. Mm -hmm. But the thing is with with uh, most physicists, and there are other phys physicists that I've communicated with, is that when they, uh, <clears throat> politics doesn't enter into uh, their minds when they are studying nature and uh, trying to find answers to particular problems or phenomena. The politics of it is something they have to deal with later. So it's like, you know, they're just going to, Go ahead and call uh, call it like they see it, and then wh whatever the politics flow from that. I mean, it's just like anybody, you know, you, Einstein or Oppenheimer or anybody who is uh, breaking new ground and new new, new thinking. Mm -hmm. They they're eventually they're gonna they're gonna be faced with the the politics of what what their creations become. Yeah. And there's got to be a lot of politics around something like this. I mean, the the, the implications of this idea are, is something that could change the future of humanity and the huge the future of the human race. Like, if we could figure out how to power our civilization through using the Earth as a battery and using these rocks to generate electrons and have free energy, I mean, yeah, or at least that's cheap, a cheap. not a small idea. No, it's not a small idea. It's it's a. Uh... And it's not, and it doesn't come at a small price tag either. It's like you know, I mean, there's, there's uh, compared to what? Yeah, exactly. That's that. That is a, a brilliant question because it's loaded. It's a loaded question compared to what you name it. Compared to uh, environmental controls. Compared to. You know the amount of coal that's in the earth now, the amount that we burn every year, mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> compared to 
all the maintenance and ancillary uh, activity that surrounds the creation of electricity that we're creating now. Maintenance, uh, oh my God, I mean, you know, you're talking, you're talking about millions, billions of dollars. How much, you, you estimated exactly how much it would cost to actually go out there, take, the, take all the scientists out to the Great Pyramid, restore it, and actually test it against your theory to see if it works the way you think it works. No, I did not. No, I wouldn't even dare. That, <laughs> are you kidding me? <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, I, I may have balls, but they're not that big. <laughs> I, I don't have, I don't have the, uh, no, I don't have the gravitas of the, uh, to to do something like that. Though in my book, didn't you estimate it? No, no. I, there was a, a, a an estimator who uh, his job is to do uh, cost estimations for building power plants. Okay. Okay. So he emailed me, uh, and he laid out a quote for what it would cost to create the Great Pyramid, assuming that it would produce like 25 gigawatts of, of power. And, 25 gigawatts. And he estimated that it would be around $25 billion. But... Where would that money come? What, where does that cost go to? Like what specifically does accumulate? What, what specifically does it take all that money to do? Um, uh, that's the extraction of the the rock, the rock, the, the crafting of it, the transportation of it. And, that's uh, just but, the rocks. But I think, yeah. But I I really don't know. I mean, you, when when we talk about building a pyramid today and using our technology, the technology that we're familiar with, mm-hmm. um, that was an estimate that was made by. Uh, the director of the Limestone Institute in Indiana, his name was Merle Bucker, and he was uh, asked uh, for an estimate by Richard Noon, who wrote a a book called 552,000. Very unfortunate title, but, you know, it was a good book. It had a lot of good information. 552,000? Yeah, it was was a doomsday type of book, right? So... Well, he claimed the, the Earth was the world was going to end in the year two thousand. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Planet alignments, and there'll be a pole shift, and then everybody will fly. A pole shift. Know. So, but I, I, I mean, Richard is a wonderful guy. I mm. met him; he's a great guy, and his book is loaded with information. Um, anyway, so he had included in his book the uh, the estimate that he got from Mel Bucker. And Mel Bucker said that the thirty three quarries that they have around Bedford, Indiana, they would, uh, if they tripled their output to quarry and uh, and cut enough stone to build the pyramid, the Great Pyramid, a Great Pyramid, it would uh, take 27 years just to quarry it and, and, uh, and deliver it to the site. That doesn't even mean that doesn't mean putting it together. They're just delivering the stone, and that's assuming no that's assuming no equipment breakdowns, no uh, union strife, or you know, labor problems or anything like that. Full tripling the output. 
tripling their output of would that take all that quarters. Do they all get that quarter, and what was and, what was, and that was the cost was what again? Uh, the cost, it, he didn't put a cost on it. He just uh, said it would be 27 years. Okay. The $25 billion was to actually com- uh, complete the pyramid. Oh, that was uh, an estimate from this um, this estimator in England. Oh, okay. Got so, it. I mean, that is like, you know, you have, <laughs> ever since people have uh, studied the Great Pyramid and wrote about it, there have been, you know, uh, oh, I don't know. Uh, as many people has a, who have opined about building it, uh, you have that many different ideas of how many people it took and what they would do, and you know, and how they would do it. You know, you've got estimates from ten thousand workers to hundred thousand workers, mm-hmm. from twenty years to a hundred years to build it. You know, it's like uh, there's nothing realistic or uh, factual, <clears throat> really hard factual, uh, that uh, you can you can assert this is the correct, this is correct, mm-hmm. until you actually do it and you have have some results. So I don't know. I mean, we don't know how the, how the, the uh, Egyptians did it. And really, right now, we don't know how we would do it because, you know, it's uh, armchair theorists are not going to do it. They're not going to build it. You're going to need professionals uh, who get involved and uh, and upgrade just about every technology that they're going to use in order to accomplish it. Mm. You know, whether it's a quarry worker who has to, or a quarry company <clears throat> that has to uh, install precision machining that will hold tolerances on blocks of limestone to within ten thousandths of an inch instead of a quarter of an inch, which which they may they may be currently working to. And that's a huge step to take when you, because you have uh, you know when you look at craft skills you go from like quarry working uh, to woodworking to metalworking uh, where you got machining then. In, Within metalworking, you've got machining, you've got tool making, you've got gauge making, uh, <clears throat> and all of those particular craft trades work to different tolerances. And uh, the more zeros you put after a, a decimal point <laughs> when it comes to the tolerance uh, on, on a dimension, the more expensive it, it, it is to make because right. it takes longer to make. And the people who are actually creating it are paid more. So you pay more for a tool maker than, say, a machinist. You pay mm-hmm. more for a machinist than, uh, say, a carpenter. You know, it, it's all about uh, how much you invest in a person, uh, and what real, how really they are adaptable they are to working to within those really, really tight tolerances, mm. really small tolerances. Yeah, because even like the buildings that you see today, some of the, even the skyscrapers, if you were to measure the base of those skyscrapers, they're within, like, if I'm if I'm correct, I think they're within a, a six-inch degree of tolerance. They're, they can be like the square, they could be six inches off square, and they can still build, according to code, like a skyscraper. Really, yeah. I thought I got that from your book. Maybe not. <clears throat> no. Okay. But like, you know, you correlate the, the the main thing about 
this precision is like you don't have to have precision without a function like the 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 goal of precision is function right, right. like you don't there's no need to make those things or these blocks for example right. in the serapium they don't what's the point of making them that precise unless they are it's necess it's necessary for a function right exactly uh, the only other the only other reason why they would uh, be that precise is that they were employing tools and methods that were capable of no less of precision. So if you consider the quality of uh, products that are made today, you compare your vehicle that's in the parking lot mm -hmm. with a vehicle that was came out of Detroit in, in the 70s, and you look at the fit and finish on the body and the other components in the car, you see a big difference in the tolerance and the precision of those of those pieces. Like, you know, the way a door fits and the gap between the door. Right. Right? Uh, so the evolution of uh, manufacturing has been to, to actually... Um, eliminate variables in the system or variables in the process that allow for error to exist or to allow for variance to exist. Okay. So when you talk about variance, you're talking about anything that varies from a, a perfect form. So you, in, you design a perfect form in, today in a computer, in the past on the drawing board. This is a perfect form. Make me this. Okay. How much can you tolerate from the person who's making it uh, of variation from that perfect form that you defined? Right. Right? Mm -hmm. And that's called a tolerance band. Okay. And so that tolerance band has been gradually getting smaller and smaller and smaller over the years. To now, where, you know, like cell phones that they make in their millions... You know, the manufacturing process has been perfected such that mm. everyone comes off uh, almost perfect. But one of the big questions, like even posed in your book, is when it comes to people challenging your idea. Yeah. Well, before we talk about that, before we talk about that, let, what sort of response have you gotten from like academia or Egyptology, Egyptologists? on your first book, Giza Power Plant. Obviously your second book's not out yet, but like what has been the response from people in general? It is a, a radical revolutionary idea uh, that is totally divorced from the, what the historical records contain, what their records, what, what their theories are. And it's uh, deemed to be uh, fringe uh, pseudoscience. So when it comes to explaining certain features of the Great Pyramid, like the shafts, Egyptologists rely on uh, magic. Yes. I noticed that in that video you sent, uh, I was watching that you referenced in the book when uh, they had a TV show where they were sending that robot up through the shaft, up to Gate and Brink's door to drill through the, the shaft. And the narrator was like, why would they end the shaft here? Why would they put a door there? 
And then it would cut to some scholar saying that it's very obvious if you use logic, the reason for that door is because Khufu's soul needed to open the door to reach the heavens and you need a door. It can't just be a free flowing opening to the heavens. There needs to be a door that he has to pass through to get to the heavens. It's just logic. Oh, uh, yes. Well, I was know. like, what? I, I don't, yeah. I think you may have embellished that a little bit, Daniel. No, I didn't. <laughs> no, maybe I, I, I underplayed that. <laughs> you underplayed it. She literally said, if you use logic, <laughs> yeah. I, this may not be verbatim, but she did say, if you uh, use no, logic. No, no, no. She's talking got, about souls. You got the wrong word. It sounds like logic. I mean, it ends in a G-I-C. It's magic. Magic. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I swear, if you rewatch that, she said logic. She said, she said logically. No. She said Magically. logically. Magic. It's magic. Maybe I didn't hear it right. You ought to pull up those clips. Do we have them? Oh, um, never mind. Yeah. We'll, we'll show, show them after the break. Yeah. So... But they, they, the point is, these scientists that are being interviewed for this National Geographic video, they're not, they're, it's all spiritual and magic is their explanations for these things. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the explanation for the, uh, all the shafts, uh, the, the uh, king, uh, <clears throat> is uh, soul can exit the pyramid and go into the heavens. Mm -hmm. Right? And um, in that, documentary the narrator uh, asked the question but what about the queen's chamber why do they need four shafts and why do they have handles and you know what about this mm. this blockage and and then she says well uh mark laner who is a, a american egyptologist believes that magic could be a part of it and so then Mark Lehner opines about, well, you know, the Queen's Chamber is just a dummy chamber, and the, uh, the, the soul would have no problem passing through limestone. Right. And that is what they call uh, a false door. So there's magic involved there. Mm. And then... <clears throat> Uh, Rainer Stadelman, who is a German uh, Egyptologist, he's in the King's Chamber, and he uh, he answers the question about the handles, or what they call, you know, those metal fittings, the handles. Mm -hmm. And he says that those are magical instruments oh. that the soul uses to lift the door so that he can pass through. So you got one Egyptologist saying, one have a problem passing through that limestone, and then mm -hmm. another one saying, "Well, you got to have those magical instruments to lift it." Mm -hmm. And then I'm thinking, "Is there a soul? Has that been proven? Mm -hmm. You know, from a scientific perspective? I mean, that has been a long, you know, <laughs> perennial question in people's mind: the existence of the soul." Yeah. Have you ever had a conversation with uh, Zahi Hawass about this? I have met him a few uh, few times. Um, and uh, the first time was in 19... No, 2001. Mm -hmm. I, I was supposed to meet him in 1995, but I didn't. 
in 2001, um, I w was in Egypt uh, filming with Grizzly Adams for uh, the PAX television, and um, he was going to be a presenter uh, also during that time. And so the, after a day of filming, the, the field producer and I went up to his office, and um, and you know he was very cordial, uh, very kind, and uh, which you know I oh, a very ebullient, charming, charismatic guy, and uh, we asked him, hey, uh, we'd like to visit the, the Serapeum. Uh, we'd also like to go in the Great Pyramid, which was closed at the time. And it had been closed for a while because of uh, cleaning. They mm -hmm. were cleaning on the inside, which had kind of surfaced a lot of uh, conspiracy theories about Zai Hawass uh, digging a tunnel to explore behind Ganton Brink's door before they, before they, <laughs> you know, before they drilled it. Um, so anyway, they. Uh, but so he gave us permission. <clears throat> we got inside the, the Great Pyramid, and I was very fortunate to uh, to capture some photographs of the uh, Grand Gallery ceiling, where uh, I noticed that there were scorch marks. And and yeah, the, the place was definitely had definitely been cleaned. Even the ceiling of the Grand Gallery, which is twenty eight feet high, had been cleaned. And you've noticed scorch marks? Scorch marks on the ceiling, yes. Yeah. And basically a pattern that uh, is similar, you know, kind of matched the resonator frames that I had in, uh, theorized were installed in slots in the Grand Gallery in the Giza power plant. Before we go into the, this resonator, when you taught, did you ever have a conversation with Zahi Huas about the Giza power plant idea or about anything like this or no? No. No. Okay. No. Okay. Just curious. Uh, I, uh, no, I, I, um, I'm not that, I'm not that stupid. I mean, <laughs> I, I may be a little zany, but I'm not stupid. Yeah. I, I kind of had his, you know, I had his measure and I, I just figured, yeah. Yeah. He asked me what, what I was doing now. There was a, a meeting before the filming and we met in the Sheraton hotel and, in Cairo, and uh, do you know if he's aware of your coffee? book? Hmm? Do you know if he's aware of your book? Uh, I believe he is now, because it's becoming a hot property in Egypt. See, the thing is, uh, <laughs> and this is why I wrote the uh, my second book, Lost Technologies of Ancient Egypt, because you know, in the Western world, there was obviously a huge wall of resistance to changing the history books on Egypt. Uh, but uh, I wrote the uh, Lost Technologies to appeal to Egyptian engineers to do their own studies. Uh, and guess what? This tiny end of the wedge. They did. <laughs> and so now, uh, wow, just this last week, I, I, got, a, I got a message from uh, two people first one was uh, a video that uh, <clears throat> YouTube video on uh, Arabic television 
uh, of them discussing my next book, uh, The Tesla Connection. Really? These are The Tesla Connection, yeah. So they were discussing that. Um, Who were the people discussing it? Were these like young kids? No, no it was, it was a, rep a reporter. It was, oh, on, it was national, reporter. Okay. on national television. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, uh, and then just today, I see in my Facebook messages uh, a message from Amada Anwar, who was a uh, principal in the, uh, the Scan Pyramid mission team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, had the sent Scan me a, Pyramid sent mission me a, a YouTube video of somebody discussing the uh, pyramid as a power plant. And and so everybody in Egypt, I mean, not everybody, obviously not everybody, but uh, they, the youth, the young people, you know, in, in Egypt are, are turning their back on the old e Egyptian, Egyptology model. Uh, when it comes to the pyramids. And even some Egyptian Egyptologists are now saying, no, the, uh, the pyramid as a, as a tomb is a dead theory. Wow. Yeah, not, um, not just one of them, a lot of them. Really? Yes. Well, think about it. I mean, think about it. Here you are, you, you've got some of the most amazing monuments and artifacts that this planet has ever produced within your country, right? Right. And you compare, you compare those with those produced in other countries, like in Greece, Rome, Europe, anywhere. I think India it would be a good contender for excellence in manufacturing mm -hmm. with their temples. But if you're in Egypt, you're Egyptian, and, and you're looking at this, and you say, this guy is saying that the ancient Egyptians were more advanced than the Greeks, the Romans, or any other culture on the planet. And they will re rewrite their own history books, not me. Ben was telling me that some people have even attacked Graham on this idea they've gone as far as calling the idea that the Egyptians didn't build the pyramids as a racist idea. Well, who's saying that? Je Graham's not saying that. No, people are attacking Graham, saying that that idea is a racist idea. That's what Ben told me, because they said that if you say that the Egyptians didn't build them, you're saying that they weren't smart enough or intelligent enough to actually build these things. Well, that is a... Uh... Which is the implication, <laughs> but that's they're basically they're throwing... They're throwing bullshit into it, just trying to label him and slander him and, and basically discredit the idea by injecting drama, <laughs> right? Yeah, and... and you know, for people that don't read into the into yeah. it, people that just read the headlines, you know, the right. lazy people that will see that and just like, Graham Hancock, oh yeah, racist ideas. Yeah, those, uh, yeah the, the people who attack Hancock like that, and, and me, by the way, because there are a few out there that are attacking me, they're, they're just building their own funeral pyre because they're going to get burned to the ground eventually. Mm -hmm. uh, it won't be by me, it won't be by Graham. Right. Yeah. But the Egyptians uh, are, are coming along. Um, 
They're very, very fine, intelligent engineers. And speaking of uh, supporters in Egypt, I'll show you an image here. Galal Hassan, Dr. Galal Hassan. Uh, that's uh, me I'm presenting my book to him. He is a, a professor emeritus in mechanical engineering at Cairo University. Oh, wow. Right. And so in his last paper, which was uh, number 109, I believe, uh, he dedicated it to me. Mr. Dunn is a science lover of the ancient Egyptian civilizations who is keen to visit Egypt and spend some time between its monuments and heritage. I have been it I have the honor to dedicate his this research work to him and hope my efforts will complete his work clarify the sophisticate easy for you to say sophistication of the mechanical engineering technologies used by the ancient Egyptians. And he was uh, he actually got his PhD in uh, at Bradford University in England. Mm -hmm. All right, so going back to this grand gallery, you said that Zahi Hawass oh. let you into the pyramid after it had been cleaned, uh, granted you some special access, and you noticed at the ceiling of the grand gallery, which is how many feet tall? 28. That there were scorch marks. Yeah, so that's the uh, photograph that I took. Um, right here, you okay. see those scorch marks. But, okay, what is this diagram here down on the left? Okay, these so... balls going up. This is what I... Basically, I wrote in the Giza power plant. Um, was that there are 27 pairs of uh, slots um, on the ramps, the side ramps of the Grand Gallery. Okay, so if you look at this area right here, <clears throat> you see the ramps, right? So that's looking into the Grand Gallery? That's looking along the length of it, right? Okay. And so um, I speculated that the Grand Gallery had held these resonators, and I had uh, put the, you know, designed these these resonators. Uh, I, I uh, speculated maybe they were Helmholtz resonators, Uh and um, but any you know a resonator that will uh, convert vibration into sound, airborne sound. Okay. Now that may not be a Helmholtz, uh, probably wasn't, but it was some kind, some device that um, was caused to move, and as it moved, it uh, produced a sound. That sound was of a particular frequency. And the design of the gallery was such that that sound was naturally focused to that passageway that leads to the king's chamber. <clears throat> I have the, the frames, right? And here you see that they line up with the scorch marks. So mm. in the Giza power plant, I proposed that there was a, um, a, a hydrogen explosion in the king's chamber. And the evidence that uh, exists that prompted me to speculate that was the, the Petrie, when he was doing his measurements, uh, noted that the, the King's Chamber was expanded. It had expanded from its original dimensions, about half an inch. And, and how did that explosion happen, do you think? 
uh, uh, hydrogen explosion. Hydrogen I, I speculate. I would speculate that there was a time in history when you had this uh, remarkable civilization uh, that were in possession of advanced science, advanced engineering, advanced uh, mechanical uh, machining, and all of the all of those. Uh, facilities that we use daily to keep our civilization going uh, existed uh, at some level. Maybe not as sophisticated as ours, maybe more sophisticated as ours. <clears throat> but then there was a cataclysm of some kind. Mm -hmm. You know, and we, we're, talk, you, we're talking about different periods of time in history, whether it's 9,000 years ago, 10,000, mm -hmm. 12,000, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, based on, based on uh, ice cores that have been taken out of Antarctica, they determined that uh, the world was heated up in like an instant right. to like incredible, incredible heat and then flash frozen instantly yeah. after that. And there's been evidence and people like Randall have done research on this that they've uh, found evidence of... Um, meteors or comets hitting the earth well, over, over a period of a thousand yeah. years. That's called the Younger Dryas. So that is the, and then, you know, I think uh, Robert Schock's uh, view is the coronal mass ejection. Mm. Um, yes. So all of those things may, may have been working at some point in time. The, um, the comet strike is probably, I think, for me, the most uh, convincing in terms of the effect that it had on the pyramids because uh, the pyramids were built uh, <clears throat> were finely tuned to resonate to the frequencies of the earth and so they were drawing energy out of the earth uh, at a no there was a known quantity so the re their relationship was like okay we're building it to withstand a certain amount of power to come through it. And then a comet strikes. Right. Okay? Right. And so there's, as, as long as we were a contained system, working with known, known energy levels, mm -hmm. uh, everything functioned okay. Right. But when you introduce energy from uh, an outside source of such a massive amount, then the uh, coupled oscillator becomes what is known as a runaway vibrator. In other words, it cannot it cannot pass through the the amount of energy that it is receiving. Mm. It it just can't handle it. Which causes a hydrogen explosion. Which causes you know, first of all, to probably shuck, shuck apart, you have uh, you have a closed system. <clears throat> the um, the blocks were stripped off the outside. Whatever mechanisms that were attached to the shafts on the outside, the king's chamber shafts, uh, were removed. Uh, it was exposed. Uh, air, oxygen entered into the king's chamber, mixed with the hydrogen, and then the spark just set it off. Maybe coming from the uh, outside right. and, and uh, down into the, the pyramid. Right. 
So everything uh, inside, uh, all the all the intricate parts inside these chambers and these shafts, like the shaft here, would have been fried, yeah. causing the scorch marks on the ceiling. Now, did right. you when you came up with the this diagram of these frames with these round things in the middle? What are those round things supposed to be? Well, a resonators. I, resonators. I identify okay. them as resonators um, now uh, of different frequencies. So they resonate at different frequencies. And did you come up with this diagram before you saw the scorch marks? Like, did you th theorize that that's what it would look like inside the Grand Gallery before you saw those scorch marks? Well, it was in my book in 1998, and uh, I didn't know about the scorch marks then. And the scorch marks weren't visible until 2001. When they cleaned it. After they had cleaned it. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, there's more, too. I don't know if we're going to have time to get Let's it. Let's go deeper. Let's go deeper, Mr. Dunn. I'm going to have to talk to my union rep. What's up, guys? That's the end of part one of this six-hour marathon with Chris Dunn. Part two is going to be dropping next Monday. We're going to be going deep into how Chris actually reverse-engineered the Great Pyramid to show how it produced energy his theory on the function of the boxes inside the Serapium, as well as the work that aerospace scientists at Rolls-Royce are doing to reverse engineer the precision artifacts found in ancient Egypt. You're not going to want to miss it. Do me a favor and hammer the subscribe button as well as the bell so that you get notified the second it drops. I'll see you next week.